Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Now, today I'm excited because I have Michael Pilla on the show. And what's really neat is as the show has gained popularity, I'm getting people who are reaching out to me and actually saying, hey, I actually have a best boss that I really want to talk about. And so I'm excited because even though Michael and I haven't worked together, he thought of somebody and instantly felt like this was the right place to talk about it. So Michael, first of all, please introduce yourself and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Well, my name is Michael Pila. The name of my firm is Pila Creative Marketing. We are a digital marketing firm providing a branding and content development for web, social, and email. We have a very, very broad practice, although lately we've been focusing more on arts and culture organizations. It's more or less a, a passion project for me. A lot of arts and cultural organizations have taken a beating during the COVID situation, so I would really like to help them all get sort of back up and running. Great. Great. That's a great area to focus on. I'm just going to dive in. When you heard the name of the show, what was the boss that came to mind for you? Well, there was two. There were my first two bosses. My first job was at a children's publishing company. And I was like an illustration major just out of college. And after bumping around for a year, I decided I needed a job. I had been seeing art directors for illustration work. And I sent out a, a whole bunch of letters, Xerox letters, to the art directors I had met while I was looking for illustration work. And uh, this woman, her name is Barry, got in touch with me and said, hi, you know, you know, I remember sending out letters like this when I got out of school. So, so we sort of had a connection in that way. So she sort of guided me through the interview process. And, and it really wasn't much of a process because I was, I was a low-level designer. But she basically took me in, took me under her wing for a while, sort of really got me started in the design business. And, you know, showed me about like, scheduling, deadlines, what it was like to work as part of a team. And then just as, as everything was going really, really well, she left to go get another job. Oh, no. Right. Now, you would think that would be the end of the story. But we actually kept in touch for for a good 15, 20 years after that. We'd have lunch occasionally. She became something of a of a mentor to me. We became friends on a, on a certain level. And uh, down the road, she was able to give me some very important projects. She got a job with a, a huge uh, trade publication company. So... I was able to design several magazines for her. She actually gave me my first website job, job with a, uh, a fabric company. And, uh, you know, she's basically trying to get them into the 20th century. So she she handed me their first major website. And I had been sort of fooling around with websites, as everybody did back then. This is sort of like in the 90s. Everybody was fooling around with websites. But she trusted me enough to hand me their first big web project. So in a sense, she gave me two first jobs. You know, she gave me my first real job in the business, and then she sort of launched my web career with that job. That's amazing. When you're thinking about even that first job that she gave you, you know, you were probably trying to navigate that environment, and you probably didn't know a lot at that point. What did she do to kind of help guide you along the way? She, she was like, like, yeah, like she sort of took me under her wing, and she sort of explained a little bit of the office politics, you know, that it was just... 
you know, designing nice things. It was it was how to deal with certain situations and certain people. Children's publishing it looks like a lot of fun, and it is a lot of fun from the outside. But there's a lot of lot of sensitivity on the inside. It's not so much politics, but people are very very sensitive as to the messages you're putting out, and a lot of messages have factions. Shall we say? And if you have one really good story is we were doing a, you wanted a sports character to sort of feature in a particular feature of the magazine. We wanted it represented by a certain sports character. So we hired a caricaturist who did a really good caricature of O.J. Simpson. Now, this is before O.J. Right. Simpson was <laughs> O.J. Simpson. He right. still a popular guy, but there was a, a group of parents who objected to the caricature, you know, and they didn't like, you know, his ears were funny, his cheekbones were funny, and they basically... You know, thought we were making fun of African-Americans, to be blunt, it's caricature. So we had a meeting with them and we wound up having to change it. Did she give you some coaching on that then? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, it was just it was just interesting to see how something that was really so innocent could could just really sort of blow out of proportions on a children's magazine. You know, you wouldn't this is the New York Times or anything, you know, it's is a But it makes sense, right? You need to know your audience and know how things are going to impact them. So that makes sense. That's what I learned, basically, is know your audience, you know. It's a classic, but, you know, it never goes away, right? Know your audience, yes. You said there were two bosses that came to mind. Yeah, the second second major job I got was with a direct mail publisher, and she hired me as her assistant. Direct mail back then was very, very hectic. We would do all our uh, Christmas promotion in July. And even though I started out as pretty much like a, a a production person, you know, I kept I kept trying trying to work up into doing more design work. And she did she saw that. And at one point, she first shared with and then practically handed me a particular section of of their direct mail package. It was something it was something referred to as a as an enclosure. So we had a catalog, which were the main items. And then the enclosures were items they wanted to feature. When I started taking over, the enclosures started to outsell the catalog. Oh, wow. It was a, it was a book. It was an online book publisher. And I like to tell people the innovation I brought to the job was that I read the books. <laughs> that was I the treated, secret. Well, I treated each book like it was a separate market. You know, so if it was a mystery book, I'm wondering what kind of mystery book is. And then let's design a, a an ad or a whatever that would appeal to people who like mystery books, that kind of stuff. She did. She gave me a lot of leeway. As long as I wasn't doing anything stupid, she basically let me go my own way and do what I will with those projects. And there was a few times where I tripped up. You know, I made some mistakes, you know, stupid mistakes. And so, but she was always behind me. Okay. So tell me about the stupid mistakes. <laughs> well, you know, things like typos, you know, things like missing a deadline, you know, things like just like kid stuff, really. But instead of Turning it into a, a tragedy. I mean, someone else would have used that as an excuse to sort of pull work away from me. But she just, you know, reprimanded me, told me not to do it again. And we just sort of moved, moved forward from there. Towards the end, this is how long ago this was. They they really started to get interested. Actually, I kind of nudged them in that direction to, uh, to go out and buy a Mac. It was one of the first Macs. So one of the last things I did for them was to help them set up a an internal an electronic publishing capability. And it was very, very rudimentary compared to what you can do today. You know, but back then, this was like we discovered fire, you know? This was oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's I a big deal. And again, I would, you know, they kind, of, they kind of allowed me to run with that. You know, I, I came in all excited about Max and electronic publishing and everything. And they basically said, okay, let's see what you can do with it. Even if they had to probably put budget against it, right? 
They did, and there wasn't a lot of budget back then. I mean, it really it was more it was more like, what are we going to do with this thing, even if we buy it? You know, there there were there were higher end computers involved with publishing. Most of those had to do with heavy duty printing, creating plates for printers. You know, and very little of them. That was the the advantage of the Mac is that it was it was very very flexible. Right. Well, the thing is, a lot of the traditional printers tried to say, oh, we could do that. But of course, the problem was they had to run film for everything. The Stone Age of printing, they're doing film. Nobody does film anymore. What it meant is that they did film for everything. If you wanted to make a change, you had to go back and rerun film. Right. Lots of extra steps. Because it wasn't totally digital. It was a hybrid of digital and analog. They tried to sell that. But but the, the Mac, as that grew up, it grew up into something that was completely digital which gave designers all kinds of freedom for for good and for ill, you know. For... So so this is interesting. So when you were working for these best bosses, just tell me, like, first of all, did you know you were working for a best boss at the time? Yeah, yeah. And it was very two very comfortable relationships. So we actually managed to get close, you know. So it was, yeah, it didn't, it didn't so much. I mean, there was a, clearly a hierarchy, you know. We, but we really got to be friendly after a while. You know, go to lunch, go to drinks, that kind of stuff. But we never, you know, crossed any lines. You know, right, right. But still, you build like a real working relationship that you value versus just you know coming in and transactional. Since the relationship reached sort of a personal level, there, you know, we were able to work out things out of the office. You know, so it just made everything a lot easier. And then, I mean, what do you think the impact is to the business? So, in my world, I do a lot of work with high potential talent and people who are on the track to being managers, leaders, like I said, future best bosses. And I always get asked, what's the impact to the business? If you had to guess, what was the impact to the business in these cases where you worked for best bosses? Well, well, personally, the impact of the business was they got a lot out of me. (laughs) I mean, I, I really performed very, very well. In the case of the book publisher, I made them a lot of money. Right. So you made them quite a bit more money. I was able to make a larger impact due to the freedom my bosses gave me. They got the best out of me and that helped the company. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hearing, right? So yeah, you have this kind of entry-level young, ambitious type and they got out of your way enough to let you... Right. I mean, I've had subsequent jobs right, that would tell me to, to stop. You know, Mike, you're only a designer. Why are you bringing up all this other stuff, you know? And, and I always saw design with a big D, you know, that it that it touches and involves a lot of things. And, and people who would hire me would see design with a little D, which means, you know, we need you to do type corrections. Just, you know, just do the just do that production work and we'll be happy. And you try to convince them, no, but there's other things we could be doing, you know, that would make this entire thing work better. You know, so I like your point about designing with a big D versus a little D, right? Because I think. I see a lot of people believe that their role is to manage detail and they they do, they miss the broader opportunity. My first two jobs, I take as big a picture as possible. I basically, without even consciously doing it, I mean, I have a very good memory and I have very good hearing and I would basically know what everybody was doing, even though it was none of my business. So it, it, more than once, someone would say, you know, what was Charlie working on? And I'd say, oh, he was doing those things over there. And he go, well, how did you know that? Well, you know, I heard him talking. You know, 
It became like the department, like encyclopedia. Okay. So in your career, have you had what I would call less than great bosses? (laughs) Oh, not so much a boss, but someone who I worked for and with. They could be a real handful. They would start out being very like complimentary. And we actually did some very, very good creative work together. But at some point, you know, they would always turn, you know, and they would get very uh, either critical or if there was a problem, they'd throw you under the bus. Or if they thought you were getting more attention than they were, you know, they would start undercutting you. I've had person try to steal business from me. You know, I would bring them in on a big project. And the next thing I know, she tries to make it their client and not my client and that I'm actually working for them instead of working together, you know, and this just really, really toxic situation where, and it could be a real mix of being very compliment. I mean, it's manipulative, very complimentary, you know, combined with being very condescending. Well, and it's interesting because status, people don't love to be kind of like that feeling of being knocked down or treated as less than, you know what I mean? Like it's just a human instinct, right? None of us love to feel like that. And to go back to, to, to relate this back to the two bosses I was saying, the two bosses were very supportive if I did well. They weren't threatened. In fact, since they were my bosses, they sort of felt it reflected well on them, you know, that they were working with people who, who were ex- exceeding and excelling. They never saw it as, taking away from from their, you know, sunshine, as it were. Another person, if someone else got up, there's one one little story. So I'm talking to another guy who's working with this person, and he says, oh, you know, she has this great new assistant. You know, they have this great new assistant. I really like working with her. And I said, well, how long has she been working with, with this person? And this guy I'm talking to says, she's been there about three weeks. He's doing a great job. I said, well, she'll be gone in about two weeks. She was. She was. Too many compliments. Yes. right. So out of the gate was always kind of lovely. But then all of a sudden when you started to see. Yes. Well, like a lot of I, I, don't, I don't know the psychological term for this, but the type of person that could be very charming, very even seductive, very, you know, very nice to work with, very productive. Everything looks just wonderful up until the minute where it's not. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're a moron. <laughs> you can't do anything. You can't be trusted. And if any little thing goes wrong, it's not their fault. They, you know, they're more than willing to throw you under the bus. So it's really abusive after a while. Sounds narcissistic. <laughs> totally narcissistic. I like that. It's t- toxic narcissism. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Totally abusive, totally narcissistic. And it's something to really watch out for because you just waste a lot of time with people like that. Right. Well, and, you know, I a lot of the times in coaching conversations, you know, it's important to remind people like they have choice of who they want to work for. You know, like we're not prisoners. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. And and I think that will help. Like the more people do leave when they don't work for great leaders, the faster we start to correct some of that problem, you know. But as soon as we convince people that they're in a box and they have to tolerate it, it's it's hard to get people to well, leave. It really gets worse. And, and it's like once those people know you're in a box, they just really dump all over you. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, it's like you're like you're in a trap. It's a tough one because I see that a lot. And there's something in high performing people, there's a small segment that some of that narcissism works because they're very competitive and they excel. They know how to work a room and all of that. But the problem is, is once they become leaders, they become very toxic. So quick question, if you had to you know, teach or advise 
leaders on how to be a best boss, given everything you've seen in your experience, what would you tell them to focus on? What would you tell them to do and, and be explicit, give them, you know, practices? What, what would they do? Well, I mean, I, really, I mean, it starts with respecting the people we work with and, and insist that they inspect you. You know, there's a the thing in the military where, you know, your subordinates owe you obedience, but you owe them care. You're leading guys at the battle. Yeah, they're supposed to follow you, but it's up to you to make sure that you're not putting them in harm's way. You know what I mean? So that's the two-way ladder of leadership in that situation. So yeah, you want to you want to first of all total respect on everybody's level. I think it's it's important to encourage that to, to get the best out of the people you're working with, not to be overly critical. And if, if things do go wrong, use those as teaching situations. Give people leeway to be themselves. You know, you may. You may have the best idea, but maybe somebody has something better. I would also to say, be very clear and decisive. I've, I've worked for people who like to make, make a consensus. I do invite, you know, people's opinions. I do invite, you know, alternate ways of doing things, but it's all about the understanding is that I'm the guy in charge and it's, I'm, it's my decision. It's my client, it's my job, it's my client, it's my department, it's my, you know, behind. So we're going to go my, I welcome all your input because that does affect my decision, but the final decision has to be mine. And I think that that makes things a lot clearer. And when you do make a decision, make it clear. And on the other side of that, if it's clear after a while that that decision is not working, make another one. Don't dig a hole for yourself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't double down on a bad decision. Right. And then, and also the general is just treat people as people. You know, I always try to get to know the people who are working for me a, a little bit, you know, just on a slight personal level. So I get a sense of, I mean, I find that helps with just general communication. You know, if I really, if I know people better, I can read them better. Right. I've always believed that. Tell what they're, what they're talking about, what if they're having issues, if you know, just how things are going that way. But it has to do basically with treating people as people, you know, give them leeway, take responsibility and be in, be in charge. You know. Great. Well, listen, I think that's a fantastic thinking for everybody out there today. Anything else you want to add? Well, this is an aside. Part of leadership, especially in a business situation, is managing your clients. People don't see that as part of leadership because, you know, you got to deal with, you're taking orders and you have to, Use those orders, not only get the job done, but to also, you know, take care of your team. And I became very good at dealing with clients when I became a parent. And it was one day I'm, I'm leaving home. I have a three-year-old daughter who's just, I don't know where she is. She's inconsolable, but she's just noise. So I get, get myself to the office and I'm dealing with a client who's exactly the same way. He's screaming all over the place. So I was just like dealing with the, the, the baby. So I used the same technique. I went, it's okay. Tell me, tell me what the problem is. Instead of, you know, running around and apologizing and what can we do? And I just, just calm down a minute, you know, tell me, try to tell me what's wrong. Let's, let's focus on, you know, what the issue and more, more times than not, it's a small issue that just got blown out of proportion. Right. 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 Try to get them to focus on the one thing. And it's, a lot of times it's something the stupidest. I really hate green. Okay. Let's, let's remove the green. <laughs> right. Right. This is solvable. <laughs> this is solvable. That's funny. I have young kids and I, I find that there's days where 
you just start to realize that adults are just <laughs> bigger young kids. Bigger, bigger kids. Yeah, it was really funny because I, I I finished dealing with my daughter and I was using the exact same approach on the client. It was it was sort of an eye opener. The other the other eye opener was: Are you familiar with the dog whisperer? Yes, Caesar Milan. Yeah. Now that works too. Okay, dogs are pack animals. So a pack animal will instinctively look for a leader. Now, if there is no leader, the pack animal decides they are the leader. That's why little dogs are hard to control. Because people people give them a lot of leeway, and so the dog thinks it's a leader. So the dog thinks it's running the house. So you have to be very calm but assertive and, and get the dog into a place where it is it is it's sort of passive. It knows that there is a leader in the house. And it makes them comfortable because they know what the story is. So I had this one boss who was a literally a bulldog. And again, another yeller. And I, I refused to, to give in to the yelling. And I just related to him in a very much, you know, common assertive way. I answered his questions very quietly and and and, and triggered something because he calmed down and he was fine. And so I got to a point, we get to the end of the conversation and he goes, uh, so he says, is this environmentally, you know, safe? Because that was part of their thing with this building. They'll be doing a whole environmental thing. I go, Alan, I said, this, this is printed on recycled paper, with soy ink. I said, you'll be able to eat this thing when we're finished. You know, so he went, yeah, uh, okay. But he never gave me any trouble because I always approached him like without fear, you know, without without trepidation, without fear, and just one-to-one. I mean, you know, look, look him in the eye and say what I had to say. And it literally triggers something in the human mind. They they go somewhere else. It's a good reminder. You know, I'm I'm smiling and and loving this conversation about, you know, the the tie into parenting and dog whispering, because, you know, I completely agree that humans are pack animals, right? Yes. And we do. Exactly. We look for a leader. We're we are looking, and I I I'm thinking about it just while you're talking and thinking about different places that I coach and support and work alongside, you know, you mentioned the point of consensus, right? And when somebody looks like they're not going to take a leadership stance, you end up with a lot of people getting confused and rallying for leadership. It's just such an interesting, you know, and I love the dog whisperer correlation. Right. No, it becomes like, a, no, it becomes like a mess because every, everybody's going to have their two cents and the issue becomes more about people having their two cents than about getting something done. You mind with a with a mishmash, which may or may not work, but that really wasn't the point. Everybody had to feel good. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways to feel good. You know, you can feel good that that you got your point in, but you could just feel good that you were part of a team that accomplished something, regardless of what your contribution was. So there's there's that. But yes, actually dogs, I did some studies of this after a while, but the psychology of dogs and humans are, are very, very close. Well, sociologists are wondering if the, the, the relationship between men and dogs, it, it, it isn't simply that men started or women or whoever people started feeding dogs, that there's a, there was already like a common thought process, you know, which in, in primitive times led to the hunt. They both hunted in similar ways. They hunted packs. You don't mind me going on here, but then apparently in the prehistoric times, they would hunt together. They'd be hunting the same animal. And they got to the point where they would start cooperating. And out of that led the domestication of, of dogs. 
So it wasn't that they were hanging around people to get a free meal. There was some sort of a sympathetic connection between the between the, the way they thought and the way they reacted to each other. That's interesting. I like I said, be on my mind today <laughs> as I go forward. Right. I'll be I'll be thinking about that because I I agree and I've always said that there is something, you know, in that pack leadership piece that I notice that's very hard to describe sometimes when I'm working with a group, but I can feel it. I can feel the the who's the boss confusion. And what ends up happening is people instinctively, even really good people who don't have any negative intent, will start to rally for some territory or something that they can dominate because they're confused. Yeah, that's that's when it gets out of control. Yeah. No, we're not we're not talking about somebody standing on the desk yelling, I'm in charge. But but just somebody, somebody who can, you know, logically guide the group to where it needs to be. Right. Because if there isn't that perceived guidance, it gets confusing for people. You see the infighting start to pick up, right? The two things Cesar Milan says is basically you need to be calm and assertive. The leader is calm and assertive that that will that will trickle through the group. Excellent. Well, listen, Michael, this was uh, a lot of fun. And I oh, think good. yes, same here. Yes. I love the uh, the kind of corners of this conversation and where they went. This is fun for me. So thank you so much. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.